Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Central Pennsylvania awoke to the news on a cold, snowy January morning in 2014 that a man had been shot to death after being run off of Interstate 81 in Franklin County in an apparent case of road rage. It took 20 months before police reported the victim, Timothy Davidson, had been murdered because he was mistaken for someone else. The West Virginia man charged with killing Davison, John Wayne Strouser Jr., has a long criminal history and has already been convicted of another murder. The Carlisle Sentinel has an extensive report on Strouser's criminal past that leads one to conclude he sh- should never have been out of jail to kill anyone. Joining us is the reporter who uh, has done the extensive investigation and work on this story, Joshua Vaughn, who is the reporter for the Carlisle Sentinel. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, before we get into the story itself, and there's a lot there, uh, I have to say, I've been around for a long time in news and, you know, a lot of criminal proceedings. This is one of the most incredible stories I have ever heard, and I think that anyone who reads your story in the Sentinel would almost have to agree because of, and what you kind of focus on, not kind of, but do, is Strausser and his criminal past. But is incredible an exaggeration? I I think it's an, an incredible story. I Even down to, and I've had this conversation with many people I, in working on this and, and on the story, it, down to the gun he used. I mean, a Razi ranch hand, it's just this almost looks like a miniature Winchester. Uh, it, it's it's just an odd gun. It's an, it, it's an odd situation of how he came across Timothy Davison. And when you look at his history, it, it does. It, it, it seems like time and time again, there, there were opportunities to take him off the streets or to take firearms away from him, do something so that he wasn't able to harm people. And it just wasn't done. All right, let's go back to January 4th, 2014. Sure. As I described there in the introduction, uh, you know, we awoke, there was snow on the ground. Uh, we actually have a picture from PennDOT on our website uh, of that day with, of uh, Timothy Davison's vehicle in the median. What happened? I actually kind of re- remember this pretty Clearly, I was actually the Greencastle reporter for the Record Herald uh, in Waynesboro at the time. So, I, yeah, around 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, Timothy Davison was run off the road uh, just outside Greencastle down in Franklin County, just across the, the Maryland border by a uh, Ford Ranger uh, that, that is now believed to have been driven by uh, John Wayne Strausser Jr. He was shot multiple times and killed. I... It appears like he was just in the wrong place at the, the wrong time. Uh, the, the theory now is from police that, that John Wayne Strausser had become obsessed with a woman in Waynesboro uh, and was trying to find her. There, he, uh, Davison was driving a silver SUV that resembled the SUV that, that this couple owns. Oh, you say the woman, and you should mention the woman so, was yeah, married. Mar- yeah. Married woman, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm married woman. Uh, and uh, the theory is he was, he was chasing after, he thought he was chasing after the husband to, to get him out of the way so that he could be with his woman or that he was going after both of them. Uh, he chased the car down, uh, started in about Martinsburg is whenever the, the affidavit says that uh, Timothy Davison's speed started accelerating to up over 100 miles an hour 
uh, chasing after him. Davison called 911 uh, in Maryland, told him that this truck is chasing him. He's fired shots at him. Call gets dropped as he's coming to the uh, Mason-Dixon line. He redials the, the redials 911, gets Franklin County dispatcher. At that point, he had been pushed pushed off the road. He tells the dispatcher that he's pushed off the road and that the, the Ford Ranger had just run him off the, off the road. Two and a half minutes later, Maryland State troopers arrive on scene, and he had been shot and killed, and Davison had taken off, uh, Strausser had taken off down I-81. Just a little bit of, uh, of background about Davison. Mm-hmm. Uh, Davison yep. was on I eighty one, middle of the night. He's from Portland, Maine. Poland, Maine. Poland, Maine. Right, right yeah. outside of Portland, is it? I, that I don't know. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's 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 in Maine. Sure. Put it that way. But he sure. was visiting friends and or relatives. He, he was and, visiting family down in Florida over Christmas break, and he was just making his way back from Florida back up to Maine whenever he came across John Wayne Strausser, or allegedly came across John Wayne Strausser. I mean, there were so many things that had to happen for a vehicle that looked the same as a Strausser, Strausser being out there in the middle of the night. I mean, you talk about just when he decided to leave, when I decided to leave Florida, how long I decided to stop at the Sheets or gas station, where I decided to stop at the gas station to fill up. All those things had to come together for him to run into John Wayne Strausser, and that that's beyond just him being out at Strausser being out on the road. That's just the his trip back. Mm. All right, so uh, the 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 killing uh, uh, occurs, and that morning, and for months afterwards, we in the media all reported uh, that it was a road rage incident. Sure. Um, did police from the very beginning think that too? I- I don't remember them ever ex- expressly saying it was road rage. I know that that seemed to be the overwhelming theory. I, I remember being at the press conference shortly after, and I, I can't say offhand that I remember them saying specifically what they thought the reason was. But, yeah, I know that that was the overwhelming theory that, that it was one. And I even reported that, that we thought it was a road rage incident. Mm-hmm. All right. So this goes on as being, in the media anyway, being reported as a road rage incident. Uh, it was a mystery for, you know, the, the public. And uh, it was scary for some people because, okay, is there a guy out there who uh, is, you know, trying to run people off the road, killing them? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Until September of last year when Strausser was arrested. What finally led them to Strausser? He was actually arrested in April of, of last year. He Oh, that's right. That's, uh, it was April of 2015. That's yeah. right. He, he was arrested uh, in April 2015 for shooting and killing uh, his ex-girlfriend, Amy Lou Buckingham, down in uh, Preston County, West Virginia. I, the woman that he supposedly was after grew up with him, was from Preston County. He had been texting her that uh, that night and calling and calling the the husband according to them they did not know he was in the area he lives two and a half hours away present county is two and a half hours away they didn't know he was in the area the the husband the next day after timothy davison's uh murder says do you think that john would be possible would be capable of doing this the wife says no it kind of gets left at that after he kills amy lou buckingham the, the, the wife and the husband both, well, he's clearly capable of doing this. They went to the police, said he has been obsessed with me. We were coming back from West Virginia, Bunker Hill, West Virginia, that night. They would have put him on the path uh, of 81 if he was coming after us. We have a silver SUV similar to what it was. And then the, the state police started digging into uh, 
David uh, in the Strasser. Uh, Strasser did not become a, a suspect in, in the killing until he murdered Amy Lou Buckingham. And then in September, police announced uh, murder charges against uh, John Wayne Strasser. Now, there are a lot of people involved in this case, mm-hmm. mostly women who were his victims. Um, we've already, you've already laid it out, Josh, that uh, uh, the chances of uh, Timothy Davison and uh, Strasser meeting on the road, that just incredible fate. And it's, it's an understatement to say bad luck, but just uh, incredible fate. Now, this is where the story gets even more incredible. Uh, And that's what most of your reporting is centering on. And this is Strausser's criminal background. And folks, after you read this, you have to ask yourself why this guy was not in jail and was not in jail before he killed one person, has been convicted of that murder, Mm -hmm. and allegedly killed Davidson that he has not been tried for. All right, let's go back to what kind of led you to reporting on this, uh, investigating this case. I, <clears throat> I after after he was arrested, I, I went back and looked at his. I did a quick search on the, the Maryland docket search to, to look him up, and found that he had been arrested for DWI. In the way that the docket had it listed was a 1997 Ford. Uh, we knew that he had a. a the affidavit was a 1997 Ford Ranger. So started digging into that, trying to find out, was it the same truck? We've now identified that, yes, he was driving the same truck four months after he killed Timothy Davison, uh, or allegedly killed Timothy Davison, uh, when he got pulled over and arrested for DWI, resisting arrest and uh, reckless endangerment down in Garrett County, Maryland. Uh, so that got me started. And when I saw his criminal history, when you, when you, you pull it up, there, there are time and time again, starting back in, in 2000, 2000 to 2001, he has this cluster of assaults, motor vehicle theft, uh, malicious destruction of property, and then 2004, he's charged with, with his first stalking. And 2000, uh, sorry, 2004, he gets, he gets charged with assault. It kind of goes in a lull at that point. And, and then 2008... He gets three women come forward seeking uh, protection from or peace orders, domestic violence, domestic violence orders. Peace orders. That's what's called in West Virginia or Maryland? Uh, Maryland. Maryland. It's okay. similar to a protection from abuse right. in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah. Three, three women come forward for that in uh, Garrett County, Maryland. Two people come forward saying that he uh, had stolen stuff from them. 2012, he gets charged with stalking uh, in West Virginia. 2013, he gets charged with stalking again in Garrett County, Maryland. Um, One of the things that really stood out in looking at his history, the 2013 stalking charge was put on STET, which in in Maryland, it's basically an indefinite postponement. So you fulfill these certain obligations, we won't prosecute anymore, and once you fulfill them, the charges go away. Four days before he allegedly killed uh, Timothy Davison on 81. So uh, December 30th, 2013, that case is put on STET. The same day, another woman uh, came forward and got a, got a peace order against him. How does that happen? I mean, that's just one. And we're going to go over some of these individual mm-hmm. cases. But uh, knowing that th- this long criminal history that... The stat that uh, mm-hmm. the, is it like an ARD kind of thing in Pennsylvania? Uh, um, how would you describe it? That, that's probably the closest. Uh, 
you you hold off the prosecution. Uh, they they in this case, uh, it was pay eight hundred dollars in restitution for the damage that you did that he did to this woman's vehicle, which he has yet to pay. Um, if he paid that money, they would halt the prosecution and after he pays the money that that case would go away they just were not going to prosecute it anymore so yeah probably similar to ARD I, I yeah maybe not I, good, I, I apples think, to apples but. yeah I mean the, the the R is rehabilitative yeah, in Pennsylvania yeah. so that, <laughs> yeah and, but you know the bottom line is is that this guy had a rap sheet uh, you know just uh, probably a yard long sure. and uh, he, he got that alright but it gets worse you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF your home for NPR news and all things regional I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Joshua Vaughn, who's a reporter for the Carlisle Sentinel. Uh, his report, his story uh, in today's uh, Sentinel, talks about uh, John Wayne Strausser Jr., the man who was is accused, I should say, of uh, murdering Timothy Davidson January 4th. 2014 on I-81 in Franklin County, and uh, it's an extensive look into his criminal background, Strasser's criminal background. Just an incredible story. I keep using that word incredible, but uh, I'll have to find some other uh, words, superlatives to, to, to say that because it, it is something that uh, is very, very unusual. Uh, let me go back to 2002. Sure. Uh, you mentioned that uh, this was a, a felony conviction he had. What was that felony conviction for? He was uh, convicted for motor vehicle theft in 2002 in uh, Garrett County, Maryland, which actually, again, if you look at his history, there numerous women uh, came out, uh, domestic violence, intimate, intimate partner violence sort of incidents. And this, this was one of those. Uh, he got into a fight with his girlfriend at the time. Uh, during the course of that fight, he pulled out a pocket knife, jammed it into the ignition of her car, started the car up, and... Drove off with the vehicle, got convicted of motor vehicle theft. There were several other charges that, that were added to that, but he pled to motor vehicle theft, which is a felony in uh, in Maryland. West Virginia law require, it states that anyone who has been kicked, convicted of a felony is not to possess or own firearms, which means you are not supposed to have firearms in your home, period. Uh, However, he did. However, he did. Uh, and one of the things that seems to have been able to allow that for him West Virginia, relatively strict on who they they deem allowed to possess and not allowed to possess. You can sell and buy uh, firearms privately without any background check. Uh, So in the case of at least the Rozzy Ranch hand, which he's accused of using in both murders, uh, he purchased that one in 2012 or after 2012 because it wasn't manufactured until then. Uh, as a private sale. He bought it from someone privately. There was no background check that was required. Uh, it is deemed a, a handgun, technically. So if he was in Pennsylvania, there would have been, been a background check on that firearm. But yeah, he, he was able to buy, sell, trade. He told police whenever he was arrested in uh, Preston County for Amy Lou Buckingham's murder that he buys, sells, trades, has no idea how many firearms he actually owns because he, you know, he gets them, sells them, buys them does all this, and he even said that when he was arrested that he was hoping after he got off probation that he was going to get his concealed carry permit, which hopefully would have triggered a background check, which he would have not have gotten. But but eventually, the law enforcement did catch on to him possessing firearms, and he transferred them, right? 
They caught on that he, yes, that he had uh, firearms. And whenever he was charged with stalking in Preston County, West Virginia, how many firearms that they knew, whether any background check was done on him at that time to know whether he was supposed to or not, that's kind of unknown. Uh, What happened was he transferred guns to a relative. And it was in West Virginia, Pennsylvania it has third party as well. So whenever you got the protection from abuse filed against him, it was you must give up any guns that you have. Um, so he transferred some guns to his sisters. Uh, and the only way we know how many guns at this point is the victim in that case uh, received a letter saying he had transferred 10 long guns, a couple handguns sort of stuff to his sister. There is a form that, that goes in the case file for that, which lists what guns you're, you're transferring, who you're transferring them to. That form was blank. Uh, according to the Preston County prosecuting attorney, they don't have to fill out the paperwork in that case. That's the uh, Judy King, the executive director of the Rape and Domestic Violence Information Center down in uh, West Virginia. I had different thoughts on that. Um, what's supposed to happen is the person that you transfer the guns to has to have a background check to make sure that they are allowed to possess firearms. And you can transfer them to them, and they can hold on to them uh, while they do this. Uh, authorities down there and the prosecuting attorney did not appear to realize he was a convicted felon until I broached the subject with them in June. Uh, of I, this year? Of this year. I, I called, asked about it if he was being charged with person not to possess firearms. And what I got was, well, what he was charged with here was uh, a misdemeanor. It was stalking, but it was a misdemeanor. And I, and I stopped him. I said, no, I'm talking about his 2002 conviction, felony conviction in Garrett County. And uh, he did not seem to, to know about that. I emailed him the, the case information, and what he responded back to me with was, well, if this was a felony, it would be a misdemeanor for him to own and possess firearms. In West Virginia. In West Virginia. Is it a misdemeanor here in Pennsylvania? I believe it's a felony. It's a little harsher in Pennsylvania. Um, <clears throat> so he he's, did not appear to to know this, and his, his other point with that was, at this point he's charged with first-degree murder. It's superfluous for me to charge him with with that, with a misdemeanor not to possess firearms. Wow. All right, there. Let's get into some of um, sure. the 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 victims in this case, sure. other than the murder victims. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you just say that he was charged with stalking, he was charged with harassment. Um, you know, he sought the women sought protection from abuse, mm-hmm. peace. Uh, you know, in in West Virginia, they'd be called, or in Maryland, would be called that. But this guy, when he harassed, yeah. harassed is not, he doesn't even come close to. Yeah. I mean, describe some of the things that he did. And we can say he did because he was basically found guilty of doing these things. Yeah, well, in some cases, yes. Uh, in some cases, the, the, the peace orders, yeah, some cases, yes, with, with some of the stockings he was convicted of. Uh, in one case, uh, the the peace order alleged that he th- he threatened to cut a woman's unborn child out of her. Uh, another, he was dating a woman. They, they broke up. He went into the house, uh, poured bleach all over her clothes. Uh, the same woman that he threatened to 
cut the child out of, filed theft charges against him because they were supposed to move to Florida. Uh, they packed up the U-Haul. He, they broke up in the interim. He headed down to Florida, kept the stuff, came back, never returned the stuff to her. So he just decided, I'm going to keep all this stuff. The, the stalking charge, which he was convicted of, uh, what he did was he was dating a woman for all of two months. Uh, she had a child with another, another man. They were co-parenting the child. One night, uh, the woman and her uh, the, the, the father of the, the child are out. Strausser shows up at her house, continues to keep coming back to the house throughout the night at one point, takes his truck, rams it into her car that's sitting in the parking lot. The way she described it, he ripped out the spark plug wires. He ripped out the wire from inside her or underneath her uh, steering wheel, just destroyed her car. $3,500 worth of damage to her car. Uh, took the side view mirror for that after he had smashed it, sent her a picture of it saying, if you don't talk to me, I'm going to call police and tell them that you hit my truck and drove off and you're going to get in trouble for this. Uh, numerous victims said that he uh, threatened suicide to try to get their attention. Uh, what really stuck out to me whenever I started going through this, so he gets charged with stalking in West Virginia for stalking a woman that he had been dating, destroying her, her car, gets gets uh, pleads guilty to that, put on probation in uh, April of 2013. In July of 2013, he gets charged with stalking and malicious destruction of property all of 10, 15 miles away in Garrett County, Maryland, uh, for doing almost the exact same thing. He dated, went on one date with a woman. Uh, she alleges that he attempted to sexually assault her. He attempted to force himself on her. She said, you're not welcome in my home anymore. The next night, he shows up, circles around the house, bangs on the door, texts her 13 times in a couple minutes saying, do you want me to leave or are you going to let me in? She doesn't respond. Sometime during the middle of the night, she hears, hears a big crash and hears his car tear off. He keeps circling for another four or five hours, uh, showing up at the house. She comes out the next morning. Her truck has been just damaged. It bashed out the uh, taillights, scratched up the car. So she goes and, and she seeks charges against him. Uh, that is the woman who was told uh, that he was being put on stet and only had to pay $800 worth of restitution to... Uh, yeah, he had a th real thing for cars, didn't he? A, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, uh, most people, they break up, and even if it gets violent, um, yeah. it's, you know, between two people, yeah. or there may be other people involved. This guy would take out his anger yeah. on the vehicles as, as well. I want to go back to the one, uh, the, the woman you said that, uh, uh, you know, he destroyed her car, that mm -hmm. took the pieces of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. Now... In that case, he took a plea deal. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening there? Uh, he wound up taking—so he was charged with uh, felony malicious destruction of property, and he was charged with uh, misdemeanor stalking. Uh, he took a plea deal to plead guilty to the misdemeanor stalking, uh, initially given a six-month prison term. That prison term was suspended, and he was provided uh, two years of probation. So he has a, a peace order against him. And he's on probation for uh, two years, which 
depending on who you ask, his two-year probation ran out the day before or the day of uh, the Amy Lou Buckingham murder. So how much time? You know, again, you look at this, and he was sentenced to six months in prison, but yet Mm-hmm. The prison sentence was suspended mm-hmm. with his criminal background. You know, we see it on television all the time with these crime dramas, Josh, where, uh, you know, the, the the police officer or the investigator goes to a computer and they, within minutes, have information sure. about uh, a criminal background uh, that, you know, a crime that has committed, had been committed almost anywhere in the country. That technology actually does exist. But... Why did not I mean, these states are within a couple miles of each other? One thing we will point out is your as your what you're hearing here. These things occurred in West Virginia and Maryland. The only thing that really occurred in Pennsylvania sure. was the murder of sure. Timothy Davison. But how did everyone keep missing this? There, there is a National Crime Information Center. I how the prosecutor missed it in. In West Virginia, that he wasn't supposed to own firearms. I don't know. It's 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 on his criminal, in his case file. It, it's on there. Uh, uh, the prosecutor in Garrett County paperwork shows that they knew he was on probation for the exact same charges. Whenever she gave him the plea deal, uh, how they missed it, I, I, I don't think information gets shared terribly well between jurisdictions. I I, I spoke with a, a friend of mine who is a, a, a law enforcement officer down in Texas. And just uh, talking to him, uh, he made the comment of, well, you think that it doesn't get shared well between jurisdictions. You're assuming it gets shared well within a department itself. It, I don't think information terribly gets it gets shared as well as it could uh, between jurisdictions and between departments to be able to piece this stuff together. And and it's a lot. When you talk about a Ford Ranger, there there are probably millions of Ford Rangers out there. This was 120 miles away from where it happened. So it's a lot of pieces to put together, but we want them to be put together. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's you have one one case, one crime being committed. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, then maybe you can see that. Mm-hmm. But two, three, four, five, six. You know, this this guy is again has a has a rap sheet. Talk about and and I know, you know those listening may say that well this is confusing because there's so many people involved so many women mm-hmm. so many different charges over uh, you know a, a 15 year period mm-hmm. um, but that, that's why I you know encourage you to read the article uh, the, the Sentinel article um, but you know and I'm kind of jumping around a, a little bit on you here but um, there was one instance where. Was it a sheriff's deputy or a sheriff actually saw a gun that he had so, and knew that he was not supposed to have a firearm? Don't specifically know if he if he personally knew he wasn't supposed to own a firearm. He should have known that he wasn't supposed right. to own a firearm. Well, what happened there? Describe okay. that situation. So two weeks, about two weeks prior to Amy Lou Buckingham being murdered in Preston County. So this would be March... Middle of March, early April, 2015. Strausser's family calls 911. Haven't heard from him in a while. Can we get somebody to go by to do a welfare check? Preston County Sheriff's deputy uh, Root goes by. The father lets him in the home. He, uh, the father owned the home, let him in the home so he could, he could look around, uh, see if he's there. The sheriff's deputy finds the Rosie ranch hand in the house 
picks it up. He's according to the the court documents, it appeared that it wasn't working. Put it back down, walked out. And just for those just tuning in, that was the gun that is allegedly used Both. on well in Timothy Davison mm-hmm. and was used. Because there's uh, a conviction. Oh, I, I, it's still it's 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 alleged on both. They they did not definitively show that in court that okay. it was. Right. But according to the prosecuting attorney, the ballistics match. They did they didn't recover a a, a bullet from that murder. Uh, but the the wound pattern the down to the uh, gunshot residue that was on there, according to the prosecuting uh, prosecuting attorney, uh, matched. Uh, so he goes in, he, he finds the gun, puts it back down, walks out, leaves it there. At this point, I mean, it's, it's three different layers of him not being allowed to own firearms at this point. He is a felon, not allowed to own— Strausser, we're talking Strausser, about. Strausser, Strausser. Uh, he's a felon, not allowed to own and possess firearms. He has a protection of abuse that, w- that is still in effect right now uh, that deemed him a person not to possess and own firearms. He is on probation. And as a person not to possess and own firearms as a condition of that, it gets left there. That gun gets used or allegedly gets used in, in a murder. It's allegedly used in a, in a murder previously, uh, according to the Preston County. Uh, it's found then after the, the Amy Lou Buckingham murder, and it's it's operational. They're able to fire it, get ballistics from it, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you would think that that sheriff's deputy would be reprimanded or something would happen to him. If he was reprimanded, it was short-lived. Within nine months of this happening and Amy uh, and uh, him leaving the gun there and allegedly using it to kill Amy Lou Buckingham, he's promoted from lieutenant to captain. Tell me a little bit about Amy Lou Buckingham. Uh, she was uh, she was a mother of three. Uh, her, according to her sister, her kids were her life. Uh, one of her. Goals in life was to see all of her children graduate high school. Uh, she was murdered uh, a year before seeing her oldest son graduate. So what kind of relationship should, did she have? What was the history of that relationship with Strasser? Sure. She had been dating him for roughly about five years. Uh, the, some of the, the, the court records, it, a little volatile. Uh, in that same time period, it appears that he was dating multiple men. You read her diary that sorry. Oh, she was sorry, okay. sorry. He was dating multiple women. Oh, okay. I was going to say it because that it, brings a whole new aspect to I, it. <laughs> he was he da- was da- dating multiple women. women. Okay. Um, you read her diary that that was entered into evidence. Uh, this was a woman who seemed to very much care about him, very much care about her children, very much care about her family. Um, got to the point right before the murder that she met someone else, started dating him had broken up with him, and he uh, was there to confront her about that. Strasser, then, you're talking Stra- about. Strasser yeah. was, was there to g- confront her about her dating another man and them breaking up. And that's uh, what supposedly led to him turning and shooting her and killing her. I don't know if you did this or not. and If you didn't, just let me know. <laughs> but how many women was he accused of, at least in the legal system, how many women was he accused of assaulting, stalking? Um, I I know you do know how many uh, protection from abuse or peace orders Mm -hmm. had been sought, but uh, I'm trying to get a a sense, just kind of summarize all of this, of how many different women he was accused of, uh, you know, acts of domestic violence or stalking. 
Uh, just from what I, I'm looking at, I, I have a little spreadsheet of all his charges and everything. Uh, just from what's in the system, it looks like about 11 women. 11 different women. 11 different women. And he is a convicted felon in mm -hmm. 2002, mm -hmm. not supposed to possess firearms, but yet had at least 12 guns that supposedly were transferred to his sister. And we don't know if that was the Rossi that was transferred. We don't know if he bought the Rossi after or he had it, transferred it, or had it and never transferred it. Uh, there's no record of it. There, there's no record, of, again, of what firearms he transferred. There's no uh, clear indication of, of when he actually purchased the gun. We know it's after 2012 because it was manufactured in 2012. So, 12 different women. How many of those uh, cases came before the murders of Amy Lou Buckingham and Timothy Davison? 10? 10. 9, 10, yeah. So, 9 or 10 opportunities. What about the, those are just the domestic abuse mm -hmm. cases, the, the domestic uh, violence cases. Were there other crimes? Uh, there were a couple. There, there was an assault charge. Uh, it looks like the victim was a male. Uh, one of the problems uh, that I ran into uh, with getting some of these records, Maryland only keeps in the courthouse records back to 2009, uh, prior to the, or criminal records back to 2009. Prior to that, you have to go to the police department, uh, and that was a little tricky with some of these. Uh, I, I was able to get the 2002 criminal complaint from the one police department and that's how I know what happened and that I got that because that seemed like a key point in this whenever you can't person not to possess but there was a, a, a male who came forward uh, that he got charged and convicted of assaulting in 2004 uh, a malicious destruction of property again against a man and then 2000 the victim was listed as a police officer for an assault charge uh, that's possible domestic violence that's possible that it's a, it's a different person that's just the, the victim in the docket got put in because he's the one that brought the complaint and that's whenever they started filing this information in that's just how they put it in so all told before being arrested uh, in the Buckingham mm -hmm. and Davis and murders. How much time did uh, John Wayne Strausser Jr. spend in jail? Prior to the Davison uh, murder, there is no time listed as punishment. He spent a few days here and there for uh, not having enough money to pay bail. He served in between the Davison killing and uh, his then the murder of Amy Lou Buckingham. He spent 12 days uh, Five days in Garrett County for the DWI arrest and uh, reckless, in, uh, reckless endangerment and resisting arrest, uh, and a week for the for that triggering a probation violation. The only case that he had that triggered any prison sentence as a punishment was the DWI four months after he killed or allegedly killed Timothy Davison. You know, I know that um, you have at least one quote from someone mm -hmm. who said that. Uh, Domestic violence cases are just not taken seriously. Mm. I mean, I think it says something when he goes to jail for DWI, but not for domestic violence. Sure. And sure. numerous domestic violence sure. cases. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Josh Vaughn, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, if you get a chance to pick up a copy of The Sentinel, read the full story. Is there just one story or are there going to be four? There will be four. So it's running chronologically uh, today's article is about the run-up to Timothy Davis, Davison's murder, so his back, back history uh, up until December 30th. Uh, Monday, uh, tomorrow's will be about Timothy Davison's murder.
Uh, Monday will be about Amy Lou Buckingham. Tuesday is about as kind of a conclusion. Here's what all happened, and, and here's some of the things that that uh, a conclusionary story. Well, good work, Josh. Thank, thank you, very, thank you much. very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. It's I'm Scott Lamar. September is Hunger Action Month. 12 million Americans have to cope with hunger every day. Project SHARE is a collaborative effort of 66 local schools, congregations, and community organizations dedicated to providing relief for more than 1,100 families in the region. Our guest today is Joe Closa, who is Education and Communication Outreach Coordinator with Project SHARE. Mr. Closa, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us here, Scott. Let's talk about Hunger Action Month. Uh, what's the idea behind I mean, I think a lot of people know it's kind of self-explanatory, but but uh, what are uh, some of the things that, that you're trying to do with this Awareness Month? Awareness is the key word, is to make us aware of, uh, of the situation, both in the United States and in Cumberland County. There, there are about 13% of Americans that are what we would call food insecure. Now, food insecure means that they, they may, at, by the end of the month, or during the month, they do not have enough, to, enough money to purchase nutritious foods, or in some cases, they have to put off purchasing food in lieu of other things like uh, gas, rent, all sorts of other things. So these, we estimate uh, nationally that's 13%. But in Cumberland County, we're talking about, um, I'd say, 11%. And 16% of those are children that are food insecure. So by making this uh, more people more aware of this, it also allows us to try to conquer that situation you say food insecure is there a difference because you know that, that, that I don't know that, that just doesn't sound like a very personable way to, to describe it when you say that people go to bed hungry I think everyone kind of understands what you're talking about but food insecure is there a difference um, I think it's uh, we, we use words that are a little bit more explanatory than just hungry nowadays, because it includes things more than just hunger. It includes people that are not that are buying too much processed foods or getting too much processed foods and not getting fresh foods into their diet. So it affects their their very being, their their education, their uh, attentiveness, everything during the day. One of the things that we try to do at Project Share is to give out more fresh foods. And we've opened up a, a second facility, a farm stand, where we provide fresh vegetables and fruit on a uh, weekly basis a couple times a week in, in our neighborhood. And, you know, what, what you're describing here is important because, uh, let's face it, uh, if people don't have a whole lot of money and they're trying to make those dollars stretch, they end up buying less expensive food, food that, I don't know, there's nothing wrong with generic, but, uh, you know, foods that uh, may not be as healthy for them, may not be fresh, as what they would if they did have a little better income. Yeah, and if you're nurtured in that situation, um, you're buying things that are less expensive, and a lot of the things that are, uh, or le not, necessarily less, not necessarily less expensive, but things that you're, you're familiar with. And unfortunately, a lot of that is due to the commercialization of the food in, the, in our country and the processed food. So when you talk about exciting things like kale and peaches and uh, vegetables and things like that, sometimes uh, even the kids, you know, are not, they'll say no to the vegetable, but they'll say yes to, you know, some processed packaged food, something like that. And we have a program uh, called Kids in the Kitchen, for example, where we teach kids about vegetables and fruits and how to actually cook, sort of like a mini master chef that we 
that we do this once a month for the children. Uh, well, that education component, and we're going to talk a little bit more about yeah. that, is very important. I mean, I think my favorite cereal growing up was Cocoa Krispies. <laughs> After a while, I finally realized when I got to be an adult that even though I still like Cocoa Krispies, um, that it probably was not the healthiest cereal for me to eat and then ended up going to something a little bit healthier. And I think that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, and that's that's our movement of Project Share, too. We're, we're trying to move away from those foods that have too much, for example, high fructose corn syrup and mm -hmm. uh, sugar and things like that and move people into a healthier diet because it's one thing to give away something that um, uh, people need for nutrition, but not to just give away uh, food that somebody else doesn't want. I mean, true giving mm -hmm. is you give something that uh, is good for people, you know, and you share that, with, share the bounty with them. You know, and Joe, such. those Cocoa Krispies were really good. <laughs> they were good, I know. <laughs> I don't even know if they still sell those or not. All right, well, let's talk about uh, kind of an overview of uh, Project Share, because you do a lot. Yeah, we do, and it's, what's interesting about Project Share, it was one person who started this 30 years ago, and uh, I know there's a great quote, uh, how do you feed 100 people, one person at a time? And uh, it was Mother Teresa, but um, our founding director, Elaine Liva, started this in 1984 from the back of a pickup truck. She started feeding people from the back of a pickup truck in Carlisle. Now we have 23,000 square feet of warehouse in Carlisle, and we feed about 3,000 people a month out of our warehouse there. We're on the campus of Dickinson College, and uh, we pay $1 a year for rent for that warehouse, so they're really part of our mission as well. And that's how we do it. We do it with um, a small staff, but we have 3,000 plus volunteers who work with us a year, and a number of hundred, hundreds of them are regular volunteers uh, throughout the year. But we get groups come in from churches, school groups, all sorts of groups that help us at different times of the year as well. So it's quite an amazing operation to see in action. When I say that uh, Project Share does a lot, uh, yeah, I guess that's a, a broad statement to make, but uh, what I mean in particular is that, uh, and we're gonna talk about some of these things specifically, but it's more than just food distribution. Um, you know, the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank, uh, you know, different geographic areas of the state. There are uh, a lot of organizations that do food, food distribution and, and try to help those who are food insecure. But let's talk about your distribution. What do you do? Our distribution, um, we do it four days of the month, actually, at our main site. And uh, what we do is we treat it like, um, like a, a real customer service opportunity to mentor with people, to to have relation, draw relationships with the people that we work with, because um, it's more than about food. It's more about working with people and help understanding, listening to people. That's a big thing that we do. And all of our volunteers and our staff are trained to do that, because this is why people come. They don't only come for food, they come to be heard and to be able to uh, work through some of the situations that they're in. So we, we do that. What we also do, as I mentioned before, uh, is provide some education programs, not only for the children, but we also do programs like in canning, um, different kind of cooking lessons that we do with the, with adults as well. Uh, with our farm stand located uh, on the corner of Lincoln and uh, Pitt in uh, Carlisle, we're able to get to a neighborhood that doesn't uh, have as much access to the supermarkets. 
uh, you know, the transportation as well uh, in, our, in our town. So by providing the, the food at that location, but not only the food, but programming as well. For example, we have a uh, Sunday yoga class uh, that's uh, given to us by Ethos Fitness in, in Carlisle, and that brings in neighborhood residents and teaches them relaxation and how to you know, to center themselves as so. So that's another a- aspect of what we're doing. We've just completed a um, self-confidence and financial literacy class for folks as well. We work together with uh, a bank in town, Wood Forest, and uh, these sorts of programs, uh, not only do they feed people's bodies, but it feeds their mind and their spirit in order to lift them and bring them to the next level in their own lives. And the, the best thing that could happen to Project Share is our mission is accomplished and we go out of business. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's well, always the goal. I'm curious, uh, you know, the, the financial collapse of uh, 2008, uh, you know, one of the unique aspects of that that we have heard over the last eight years is that uh, there are many people, middle class people, uh, people who even have jobs uh, who are seeking food assistance. Have you seen that as well? Absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a number of causes for the need for food. And I think any of us can envision a scenario in our lives that could lead us to that situation. That's why we can feel empathetic towards the people that come to us in that. I mean, we have people that are work, what we call the working poor who are working full time in Carlisle in the area, but at a minimum wage or at a, a wage that is not sustainable for their life. I mean, we talk, we talk about 34% of our um, recipients are making $12,000 or less a year. I mean, by the time you pay rent and gas and utilities and everything like that, it's a decision sometimes between food and the other necessities. You know, what's not a necessity? So that's that's where that comes from. Also, um, people who have had a health crisis, and maybe then they lose their job. When they lose their job, they lose their health insurance, and then they have to pay maybe a triple tre- premium to keep health insurance. They can't sustain themselves. So any of us can be in that situation, and that's why an organization like Project Share helps people get through a tough time, which may be short-term or long-term, and um, move on to something else. And then there are other people in our society that are born into situations where uh, they may have been born with uh, some sort of illness, or they may have had an illness along the way. They're just uh, lack of their lack of educational opportunities in their life, or other kind of challenging things in their lives that have made it difficult for them to sustain themselves. So we we need to care for for that community. Something I uh, one of the services I guess you would call it a service that uh, you offer that. Uh, I don't know if it's unique. Uh, maybe it's unique in its name and uh, the actual uh, thing of what you're doing. But gleaning. Tell me what gleaning is. I love it. Gleaning. It's a great word. And uh, when I think of it, I think of the Middle Ages, and I think of the the uh, the, the Lord of the Manor, basically, you know, harvesting from the field and then allowing the serfs to come back and glean, which means to pick the leftovers after the harvest has been done. And we do this in a very organized way at Project Share. Uh, we work together with uh, uh, farmers and orchards in the area. And actually, I went out on a gleaning expedition myself about two weeks ago with my wife. And we, we went to orchards in Adams County. And the uh, the uh, 
the folks at the orchard took us to a a location with all the trees, and they said, uh, well, you can pick from this location anything that's left, and you can pick off the ground any of the apples that are available. And I looked around, and I thought, these trees are empty. What are we going to get out of this? And after a while, I got out there with a bucket, and I say, four or five apples on a tree, start filling up the bucket, a couple of good ones on the ground, not bruised. And by the time two hours had gone by, we had gleaned 800 pounds of apples. Those apples then went back to like our farm stand. Uh, we gave them out to the community. We also may, were making uh, through our kitchen. Um, we have a kitchen at Project Share as well, and we do canning. So we're doing applesauce, we're doing apple pie filling and cider. So all of this is from the leftovers that would have been left to rot on the field. So gleaning is a great concept that we're uh, involved in. We're, we're on a track to get, our goal is 100,000 pounds for gleaning this year. We, we gleaned 57,000 pounds last year, and right now we're between 60 and 70,000 pounds. Mm. That's that's incredible. I mean, when you said eight hundred, I thought you were going to say eight hundred apples, but you say eight hundred pounds of yeah. apples. That's incredible. Babies, yeah. uh, young people, and older people uh, are probably two vulnerable groups when it comes to food insecurity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you do mention ma- babies, and the first thing I think of is the baby room. We have a baby room at Project Share where we have uh, formula and all sorts of, of baby food for our for our clients. Um, as far as seniors, we have about 17% uh, of our clients are seniors that we work with them as well, help them with the food. We also do home deliveries for a number of these seniors and for anybody who's infirm, so they don't have to come to Project Share if they need a home delivery. Again, our army of volunteers um, gets involved in that and does home deliveries there. But yeah, that's partic- that's a particular concern of ours with, I think, 30% of our um our population, our recipients, our children. You know, another group that we've heard so much about uh, as far as uh, being hungry, uh, going to school hungry, and that is that is school children. Um, you know, often we hear about the free or reduced price lunches, but uh, you actually uh, provide back backpacks. We do. We have a backpack program, and uh, we work together with the, uh, the local school system in uh, Carlisle and Middlesex, and what we do is we provide backpacks for the weekend. Uh, children get lunch during the week at the schools, but some of these children, they'll go home during the weekend, and they'll have a, a lack of sufficient nutrition for the weekend. So what we do is we put together packets for them. There's about 250 or so kids in in our town that we do that for. Well, uh, Joe Klotz, I want to thank you very much uh, for, for being with us today. Uh, Joe Close, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for being uh, w- with us today. I wanted to point this out because, as you said at the very beginning, uh, awareness is the big thing. This is an example of what's going on in Cumberland County, but there are organizations like yours, maybe not exactly like yours, but thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on uh, Monday's program, we're going to be talking about new overtime rules and what it means to employers and workers.